Good morning or good afternoon or good evening. This is Karen Kay, Recovered Compulsive Eater from Syracuse, New York at my credit stone transfer. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study. We are the, where we study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you have a question during the meeting, please contact either me, the host, or the co-host, which is uh, Sue L. from PA, and private message them in the chat function. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G., will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question answers, which follows, will not be, will not be, re, will not be recorded. We'll post a link to, to the, to the uh, excuse me, we'll post a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat. We ask you to make sure you, you keep your microphones on mute at all times during the studies today. Also, please turn your camera off if you're exercising, eating, if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. And I'm sure Sue will help me out with this. We'll post a link to the previous week's recordings in the seventh edition in the chat function. I will turn I will turn the meeting over to Harlan G. It's all yours, Harlan. Thank you, Karen. Thank you very much for your service. And I think this is the first time that Karen has hosted now that she is a married lady. Karen is a newlywed lady. Uh, so we're very happy that she's with us today. We missed her. Uh, I'm very glad to be here. Um, I am feeling so much better than I did last week. Last week, I was still sick from my trip to Chicago. I went from 80 degrees to 30 degrees, from 30 degrees to 80 degrees. And my 67-year-old bones and my 67-year-old system said, uh-uh, no way. So I was sick for days. I was, I was really, really out of it. And I'm feeling like 100% today. Um, I hope that it is as absolutely gorgeous where you are as it is here. We're going up to 77 degrees today. It's in the low 70s as I'm speaking to you. It is just gorgeous. There isn't a cloud in the sky and it is absolutely gorgeous. And everything here is starting to crowd up as the snowbirds make their way back to Arizona. Because last year, they weren't here. They didn't come because of the uh, corona, because of the pandemic. And this year they are back in force. And so the grocery store is more crowded and the streets are more crowded and the every, everywhere you go is more crowded because this is a big, big tourist destination, especially between now and the middle of May. Once the once May first comes along, and they start getting a whiff of those of those uh, blast blast furnace temperatures, then they start running for the hills. They start going back to Chicago and Minnesota, and God knows where they're out of here quickly. But for right now, they're here, and we're glad to have them because they're a big part of the economy down here. But anyway, enough about that. We are in the chapter of vision for you. And the chapter of vision for you was written so that we would have some sort of a picture of what life is gonna be like without the food or without the booze. You know, one of the things that trapped me in the food addiction was not just the mental twist and the, and the physical allergy. 
There was also a question that I always had in my mind, what am I going to do? How am I going to recreate? What am I going to do? How can I watch a football game without a pizza and a family size bag of Doritos and ice cream and God knows what and on and on and on and on and Malamars and Oreos and God knows what. What am I going to do when it comes to certain activities that in my mind I associated so closely with eating excessively? You know, it seems I never ate moderately. I never ate moderately because of the physical allergy. And I knew that there were certain times, football games or uh, whatever downtimes I had, where I was going to just massively pig out. And in my mind, there was an expression that I used to use. And the expression that I would use if things went extremely badly for me, if things went extremely good for me, I would say, F it, tonight we ride. And when I would say, tonight we ride, that meant that I was going to eat until the money ran out, which sometimes happened because money was always a huge issue in those days. I didn't have the income to really support my food habit. So when I said, tonight we ride, that usually meant I had a few dollars in my wallet, whether I got it legitimately or I got that money by writing a bad check or I got that money by not paying rent or not paying a, an electric bill or a phone bill, didn't matter. One of the things I can tell you is that this boy always had money for pizza. He always had money for God knows what, because that was my number one priority. And I remember when I was very early in recovery, a very, very rude, big man told me, you gotta make this as important as the food used to be or forget it. And he would poke me in the chest as he was telling me this. And what it meant was this has to be the number one priority of my life. Food, I had no problem making the number one priority of my life, but I had all kinds of excuses why I couldn't do this or why I shouldn't have to do that. I remember very distinctly, I remember, I don't want to do a sex inventory because I came in, I was 24 years old. I didn't go on my first date with a girl till I was 35 years old. Not a lot of girls are going to date a guy five, 600 pounds, 700. They just, they're just weird that way. They just won't do that. So I didn't go on my first date till I was 35. So that was 11 years later. I probably would have committed suicide if I knew at that time, there would be another 11 years before I would go on a date with a girl. I'm glad I didn't know because I would have definitely killed myself. But the bottom line, or wanted to, uh, I was doing it anyway. You know what they say, this is a suicide by fork. This is death by Dorito. This is torture by chocolate turtle. But the bottom line is still this. Um, he explained to me that I have to do a sex inventory on my relationships, even though my relationships were non-sexual. I don't mean my relationships with females. I mean my relationships with anybody to see how manipulative they could be or selfish or self-serving that they could be. And it proved to be a wonderful, wonderful teaching tool. So I'm glad that that happened. Anyway, 
<clears throat> we're on page 163. And we are at the point where it says, we know of an AA member, and I'll give you a second to get to there. 163, we know of an AA member. And we're going to be talking this morning about some historical figures in everything that we do. Always remember this, guys. It, this picture that some have of Bill meeting Bob an AA sprung out of their noses is not an accurate picture. There were other people, there were other people that played major roles in the fellowship that we have in front of us today. And we're going to be talking about Hank Parkhurst. And Hank wrote the chapter to employers. And I talked about him when we started that chapter. But when we embark on our reading of today, we are also talking about Hank Parkhurst, who lived in Teaneck, New Jersey at that time. He was later to be in Newark, but at this time he was in Teaneck. All right, let's begin 163. We know of an AA member who was living in a large community. He had lived there but a few weeks when he found that the place probably contained more alcoholics per square mile than any city in the country. So he's looking around and I bet you he saw what any of us could see today, that there was addiction all around him. Now he wasn't looking for food addiction. He wasn't looking for, he was as skinny as a rail but he was looking for alcoholism, but we could broaden that out. I got a very startling statistic. When I was in Chicago, I had an opportunity to talk to a very, very wonderful friend of mine. And he told me something that I already knew. He confirmed for me that emergency rooms, because he's a cardiologist, he confirmed for me that emergency rooms all over the country are seeing drug overdoses in massive numbers because of the pandemic. And the, the pandemic has also uh, accelerated a lot of food addiction and, and sex addiction and, and alcoholism and gambling and God knows what. But he looked around and he saw the same thing that we see all the time, that there's addiction all around us. Any trip to a grocery store, uh, any, anywhere you want to go, you don't have to go to a grocery store. You can go to a car wash, go anywhere you want. You're going to see it all around you. You're going to see it all around you. This was only a few days ago at this writing. See, this chapter was written just days before they put this manuscript in the hands of the printer. It was almost as if they were running behind the station wagon, writing as they went along, because the book was written in 37 and 38. This was printed on April 10th, 1939. This is late March, early April of 39. So he's not lying or exaggerating when he says this was only a few days ago. The authorities were much concerned <clears throat> 
he got in touch with a prominent psychiatrist who had undertaken certain responsibilities for the mental health of the community. And he's talking about a guy whose name was Dr. Howard. And Dr. Howard lived in Montclair, New Jersey. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Howard. Dr. Howard was a guy now, we also sometimes think that the art of psychiatry is an ancient art. That is not true. The art of psychiatry really came into its own early 20th century. It is not that ancient of a thing. It came around early 20th century, and this is 1939. So you had Freud, Adler, Jung, and you had this guy, Dr. Howard in Montclair. Now, it's not going to describe it here, but I'll tell you how Dr. Howard played a very important role in the success of Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, Al-Anon, all of it. Here's what happened. I told you that the book was written in 37 and 38 and published on April 10th, 1939. Now, the book was not supported very much by the Akron group. They were trepidatious about this and they weren't sure that this wasn't some sort of money-making scheme because some of them loved Bill Wilson, but some of them didn't trust him. Different kind of mentality. The book really came, really sprung from the New York group. The New York group really was the center of the push to write this book. Remember that they wanted to do three things. Thank God only one of those things came to fruition. They wanted to start a chain of hospitals throughout the country where drunks could get treated. Now, if you go back to 19, the 1930s, the 1920s, or even now, an alcoholic had a very difficult time getting into a hospital as a patient. They didn't have uh, such a liberal attitude about alcoholism at that time. It was thought to be a waste of time by the doctors. They knew they couldn't help you. And so what had to happen most of the time is the doctors had to lie. They would put down gastritis. They would put down ulcers. They would put down all kinds of other maladies. And then in the comments, they would put in alcoholic drinks too much, whatever, passes too much gas, cheats at cards, I don't know. But usually what they had to do to get you in a hospital was they had to put down gastritis, ulcer, uh, colitis, some kind of malady that may have been associated with alcoholism, but they could not, would, would not usually admit you just for alcoholism unless it was the town's Bellevue, certain ones that had uh, the, the, the treatment centers as we know them now. In those days, it was just a drunk tank. They didn't use the term treatment center in those days. It was a drying out hospital. They would say mother or father has gone for treatment. And what treatment meant was they were going to Bellevue or they were going to towns or they were going to God knows where to get dried out. And that's what they would do. But usually to admit you to a hospital, they had to cook up some other thing. 
Well, this Dr. Howard, he got an early mimeographed copy of chapters one and two. And he didn't have a lot. And then he got a mimeographed copy of chapter five. Well, when he got the mimeographed copy, he looked at it and he got in touch with Bill Wilson right away because he said, Bill, you've got to write this in the declarative rather than in the imperative. Now, what does that mean? There are still some chapters, seven and eight, that are written in the imperative. What does that mean? The imperative means you do this and you say that and you go here and you go there. And Dr. Howard said to Bill Wilson, an alcoholic bill, even though you are an alcoholic and I'm not, I don't really believe that they're going to respond to being spoken to in that way. Bill Wilson understood from conversation with Dr. Howard that the alcoholic is not just an alcoholic. We are sensitive, immature rebels. We are sensitive, immature rebels. And I would say to you that there's 104 other people here besides me. I am not alone. We don't like to be told what to do, do we? I bet there's not too many people here that like to be told what to do. And he said to Bill Wilson, gosh, Bill, don't write it in this. You do this, you do that, then you do this, then you do that. Then you go here, then you stand on your head. And Dr. Howard communicated with Bill in such an effective way that Bill went back and changed everything except chapter seven to the declarative, seven and eight. Seven is written in this imperative. You say this, you do this, then you do that, then you do here, then you go there. And he left that alone. He hadn't written it yet, but he left that in the imperative. And so Dr. Howard is one of those people that played an integral part in our recovery program, even though most people do not know who he was or what his contribution was. Very, very important. I'm not taking anything away from the guys right behind me. They're looking over my shoulder here. The guy with the glasses is Bob, and the guy without the glasses is Bill Wilson. And even though these guys are, in, are very key, they were not alone in the formation of it. There were many who played a role, including Hank Parkhurst. If, you know, if it wasn't for Hank Parkhurst, and I said this as we did the chapter to the employers, if he didn't tell Bill to keep the book as a property of AA, we wouldn't own our own book. And if we didn't own our own book and a publisher had rights to it, they could change it. They could stop distributing it. They could, you know, they could do anything they wanted to it. They could change the language. And all I know is, heck, I don't want any of it changed from this point forward. My God, if it works for the love of God, don't fix it. Don't fix it. There have been some changes made. You know, you hear this all the time. 
there's no changes. There's been changes in the first 164 pages. Here are a few. Uh, the first one is they changed step 12. Step 12 used to read in the first edition, uh, first printing, it said, having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to the alcoholic and practice these principles in all of our affairs. Well, here's what they changed that to. <sighs> Second printing, my facocta allergies are acting up again, but that's okay. That means that it's nice outside. That's fine. Okay, now, Here's what it was changed to, having, uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of those steps. See, he changed these to those, right? Let me make sure I'm telling you the right thing here. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm accurate here, but I always like to make sure. No, these, I'm sorry. It doesn't say those, it says these. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps rather than those steps, we tried to carry this message to the alcoholic and to practice these principles. So he changed spiritual awakening or changed spiritual experience to spiritual awakening. And then they put in the asterisks and there's a four times they'll tell you to read appendix two. And then they wrote appendix two, which is on page 567. We're not gonna go through it this morning. We already did. And we're gonna go through it again when we hit the chapter two. But they also added something in 1959. 1959, they added something, and that's that Herbert Spencer quote. That Herbert Spencer quote did not appear until the fourth printing of the second edition, which occurred in 1959. I have a second edition book and a first edition book. I have a one-one, first edition, first printing. And there's no appendix to in that book. In my second edition, first, my second edition, first printing, they have appendix two, but there's no Herbert Spencer quote. That occurred in 1959. Bill was, yes, he was still alive. He didn't die until January 24th, 1971. So he was very much alive when that occurred. These are some of the things that I think is important. Okay, let's continue. And we're gonna finish this chapter today, unless I keep yakking. Our friend proceeded to tell him Oh, wait, I didn't finish. So he inquired, what did our friend have on the ball? Our friend proceeded to tell him and with such good effect that the doctor agreed to a test among his patients and certain other alcoholics from a clinic which he attends. Arrangements were also made with the chief psychiatrist of a large public hospital, Bellevue, uh, to select still others from a stream of misery which flows through the institution. That psychiatrist was Dr. Russell Blaisdell. Bla Dr. Blaisdell was a very, very uh, serious man about the treatment of alcoholism. But Dr. Russell Blaisdell, when he got wind of what was happening with this drunk squad of the Oxford group, he was highly interested because for centuries, nothing worked. Nothing could get through to these people. Nothing was helping them. And generation after generation, century after century, children, wives, husbands, fathers, people, employers 
would cry into the night, why can't Joe, why can't Mary, why can't Cindy, why can't Fred stop drinking? If you really loved me, daddy, you wouldn't drink so much. If you really loved me, mommy, you wouldn't drink so much and you'd stay home at night and daddy, you would stay home at night and you wouldn't keep leaving us with babysitters. And how many generations of people, notice I didn't say Americans, of people, no matter where they lived, were affected by alcoholism. See, alcoholism, drug addiction, food addiction, gambling, it does not just affect the sufferer. It touches the lives of the children. It touches the lives of the parents. It touches the lives of the people that are closest to us. And it doesn't touch us in a very positive way. So this Russell Blaisdell, he was highly interested in what was going on. And he is associated with Bellevue Hospital, which is in, still is in New York City in Manhattan. So he was very associated with that. And at, at, um, at Bellevue, they had like what they had at Towns, only it wasn't as upscale. It wasn't as upscale. Towns was the creme de la creme. Silkworth worked at Towns Hospital. I'm at the bottom of 163, so our fellow worker will soon have friends galore. Some of them may sink and perhaps never get up, but if our experience is a criterion, more than half of those approached will become fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous with a few men in this city when a few men in this city, New York, Teaneck, have found themselves and have discovered the joy of helping others to face life again, there will be no stopping until everyone in that town has had his opportunity to recover if he can and will. We, we look at Shakespeare sometime and I look at all the various quotations. He's the most quoted person that ever lived, Shakespeare. And one of the things he said, the saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words, it might have been, we are the few, we are the minority, the small minority, the infinitesimal minority of compulsive overeaters who are at the present time trying to recover. I do not know what happens tomorrow. I might be face down in Oreo cookies. I have no idea what tomorrow brings. I hope not. I hope not. But the sad part for so many millions and millions of people is that they will never come in, or if they do come in, they will never give our way of life a fair trial. So sad, so sad. And we are the people who are the only ones in the world who know what it's like to suffer from this disease and also where to get help. We are the, we are the few. We are the very, very infinitesimal minority. And what can we do for that person who's out there suffering? You know, it's worse than death. I, I'm, I know I've mentioned this 
probably too many times, but I was in Chicago, not last weekend, but the weekend before. I went home to Chicago to go to a wedding. And while I was there, I saw the disease in its active form. While I was there, I saw it. While I'm here in Arizona, I see it. I see it all around me. I see it every day when I go out to anywhere public, you see this disease in its active form. And one of the pictures that I always have of, of my life, one of the pictures that I always have is what I did to myself. I don't have to really look at others. How many hundreds of times did I pass empty potato chip bags to the checkout person at the grocery store because I had eaten the potato chips before I got to the cashier? How many candy bars did I eat before I got to the checkout line? But when I was coming home from Chicago and I was at O'Hare Airport, there is a McDonald's in the section where my airline has its gates. My airline that I traveled on was one of the last airlines to come over to O'Hare. And so their gates are way in the back. So I had an opportunity to walk the, uh, the concourse. See, we had Midway Airport in Chicago, but in the 50s and the 60s, this airline was a little more reluctant to leave Midway. And that's why they got the, all the gates all the way in the back. But I, had my, I have miles on this airline and that's why it's very wonderful for me to travel on them. So I went first class both ways, cost me $22 in taxes. So I was willing to walk the concourse for that. That was fine. And there's a McDonald's and I saw a woman, a man and three kids, three kids. And one of the kids, the girl was completely benign to any of the food. She was just benign, 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 nothing, nothing interested her. And the boys were just going out of their minds as the, as the worker from McDonald's was giving them their food. They were just going crazy and I could see it on their faces. And the little girl was very worried because when she got her bag, she like hit it. And you could tell that these boys had eaten her food many times before. She was as thin as a stick. And these guys were from the heavy fuel crew. These kids were not thin as a stick for sure. And it was, it was a, a real picture into the disease. And it just it made me sad. It made me very sad. It made me sad for the little girl. And it also made me sad for the little boys, because if those little boys could stop themselves from stealing her food, they would. They just cannot help themselves. It's something that takes, takes you over and it, it, it enslaves you. It just absolutely enslaves you. And so it was sort of a picture into what this is all about. And um, we are those people, not only that have experienced the disease, but we are experiencing the recovery. Even if you're here and you're on the struggle bus, you're not quite sure if this is something you can do. You at least know where to come for recovery. That's more than a lot of people know. I have a real estate license in Arizona. I don't sell houses. I probably should. I don't sell houses. I work with a, a, a business broker and we, we, we sell biz, people's businesses. And I also do radio airtime. But anyway, um, 
in real estate that you have to take continuing education every two years. And one of the things they tell you in, in real estate continuing education is, remember that it is illegal for you to step outside your area of expertise. If you're not a commercial realtor, do not venture opinions. If you're not a residential realtor, do not venture opinions. You say to the client, or if you're not a business broker or whatever, you get the information. So in other words, they say, you don't have to be the source of information, be the source of the source. Here's where you can get the information or let's get this information together. But when it comes to this, we can be the source of that information. And if you, if you think about it, we're the only ones. Now, if you don't know, you can say to someone, I just don't know. You can ask someone else, come to the meeting. You can ask there. But if you have some recovery under your belt, you can be a marvelous source. Would I give someone advice on a disease or would I give someone advice on whatever? No, I would not. I'm not qualified to do that for God's sakes. But if someone wants to know how to work step seven or someone wants to know how to work step 12 or something, here's my hope and experience around that. I have something to say. I've worked all the steps. <clears throat> I've worked them zillions of times and I have experience with what works and what doesn't work. So do you. You have a source that's unfailable. It's called the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's continue. We're on page 164. We're in the home stretch now. We're going to finish real soon. Still, you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him, not sometimes upon him, not most of the time upon him, always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship that you crave. I'm going to go back again because my trip to Chicago is a good, good metaphor for what I'm trying to illustrate for you. I was so happy to go home. I saw people that I haven't seen for four years. I saw people that have been a part of my life since 1959 when I entered Green Grammar School on Devon Avenue on the north side of Chicago. And there's a picture of me. It's taken on September the 8th, September 7th, 1959. And it's me in short khaki pants and a t-shirt and it is the first day of kindergarten and only the kindergartners can use the back playground. All the other grades have to use the front playground. Only the kindergartners can use the back playground. And there's always extra teachers, extra security around the back playground to make sure no one runs in the street, no one whatever, you know, make sure everybody's okay. And there were people that I got to hug and I got to talk to and spend time with that were in Mrs. Geverman's kindergarten class when we had grades 
1A, 1B, afternoon kindergarten, morning kindergarten, and then Chicago stopped the half grades. They stopped it. There used to be two graduations a year, one in January, one in June. There's no more of that. It's all, and some of the kids, I wasn't one of them, but some of the kids did three and two. They did three grades in two years to catch up so that we could eliminate these half grades. Anyway, What's the point? Here's the point. I know everything about them. I know their mothers and their fathers and their grandmothers and their grandfathers and their uncles and their aunts. And I was at their bar mitzvahs and they were at mine and I danced at their wedding. No, I didn't. I really didn't. I was at their wedding, but I didn't dance. I ate egg rolls. But the bottom line is I was there for the milestones in their life and they were there for the milestones in mine. But you know me better than they will ever know me. And I have a home here in Overeaters Anonymous that is more comfortable, more homey, and more, more of, a, of a sense of comfort and nutrition for me. That's the only word I can use is nutrition. This is what feeds my soul. This is what feeds my heart. This is what feeds my life, my brain, is the membership of Overeaters Anonymous. You know me better than they will ever know me. I know you better than I will ever know them. I know everything about them. They know everything about me. But there are people here that I've met and that I've known. Some of you come to the Scottsdale meetings Sunday through Thursday. I have a chance to catch up with you on an everyday basis. And some of you don't. You know right where I live. You know why I am who I am. They still don't really understand why I can't eat dinner at 10 o'clock at night. And they think it's absolutely ridiculous that I ate dinner before the wedding. Isn't that stupid? Not for me, it's not. I can't eat those egg rolls and those pizza rolls and those, those whatever it is, the cheese on the bagel and whatever. I don't, I didn't want to look, oh, and the meatballs, the Swedish and the sweet and sour meatballs that are loaded with sugar, loaded with sugar. I can't eat that stuff. I'm not going to eat that stuff. Thank God. Maybe tomorrow I will. I don't know. I couldn't tell you, but I'm not eating it today. So I have to eat dinner before I go. They have no idea why I'm not watching college football now or sleeping or God knows what. They do not understand why because I'm not that fat anymore. And they'll say, why do you have to keep doing it? I don't have to explain it to you. I don't have to explain to you why I brought a lot of my own food to Chicago and why I went to a grocery store. As soon as I got out of the airport, the first thing I did was get my butt to a grocery store because there were things I knew I didn't have to bring that I could get it in a grocery store. For God's sakes, it's the third largest city in the country. We're gonna have in our grocery stores, lots of the things that I would have brought. 
and they have all the specialty, you know, the whole foods and the, the high end this, and they have all that in Chicago. And I know exactly where to find it too. I know where to find the Doritos. I know where to find the McDonald's and I know where to find the healthy foods. Trust me, if you want to binge in Chicago, I'll draw you a map. I'll, I'll let you believe me. I will. No, I won't. I really won't. And that was the first thing they did. And they just don't understand why I have to insist on a microwave and a refrigerator in my room. Why do you have to nag them? Why do you have, why don't you just eat out like us? They just will never get it. And I stopped trying to get them to get it 30 years ago, 40 years ago, because I inherently understood that the only ones that will ever understand any of this are you. And I have a place where I can go to understand and be understood. That's a lot. That's a really, really lot to have. There's a lot of people that don't have that. And you know, they're complaining a lot of them. You know what they're complaining about? They're retired and they haven't got anything to do. I wish I was retired because I've got plenty to do. I get a lot of outreach calls as early as three o'clock in the morning, sometimes 3.30 in the morning, I get outreach calls and they don't stop. It's like a freaking bookie join in here sometimes with all the outreach calls. But I love it because you guys keep me out of the food for one more day. They will never understand that. I have a purpose to my life. I'm never really alone and neither are you. We have a place where we can go and be loved and love others where we can understand and be understood. We have a purpose and a rhythm to our lives. Whether we are black or white, green or yellow, polka dot or paisley, whether we are Catholic or Protestant or Jewish, or we are Buddhist or we are Muslim or we are whatever we are, it does not matter what we are, we are welcome here. And this is, to my eyes, the greatest way of life imaginable. It is a way of life where inherently you know that you are doing the right thing when someone, somehow, somewhere reaches out and you can be that outstretched hand of Overeaters Anonymous. To be the outstretched hand of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who urgently seek it, for this I am responsible. That is the responsibility pledge of Alcoholics Anonymous that Bill Wilson wrote. I'm gonna repeat it again. To be the outstretched hand of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who urgently seek it, for this I am responsible. That's the that's the uh, responsibility pledge of Bill Wilson written oh so many years ago, but it is as appropriate today as it will be in a thousand years or 20,000 years because there are people suffering and you can give them comfort because you understand what it's like to suffer from this disease. And it is a mortal affliction, permanent, progressive and fatal.
let's continue to what we read every day at the conclusion of a vision for you phone meetings and most live meetings our book is meant to be suggestive only we realize we know only a little remember that this is the final benediction this is the final part of the book they put the stories in the reason that they put the stories in is because of william james the varieties of religious experiences a series of stories about what happened to people what they were like and what they're like now and that's why you have those stories but he wasn't sure how to end the book and this is what they came up with i believe that it's god inspired God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. I learn all the time. I learn every day. And you are my instructors. You are my school. You are the masters of what I learn. You are the schoolmasters. Ask him. That means God in your morning meditation, what you can do each man for the, what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. If your house is a mess and you're eating and you're not doing steps 10, 11, and 12, or if you're at the beginning, you're not doing your work, then it's going to be jarbled. It's going to be very, very jarbled information. You cannot pass on what you don't have. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. Great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. I went to Chicago and I didn't have to do this this time, but I'm reminded of our 40th high school reunion. We're going to have our 50th reunion next October. I graduated Mather High School in June of 1972. So in October of 2022, we will celebrate our 50th reunion. And I went to the 40th reunion and I loved being there, it was wonderful. And it was the very first time that many had seen me in a very long time. And they had never seen me with such a drastic, dramatic weight loss. And we had the reunion in our high school, which didn't bode well for some of the alcoholics because our high school is on Park District property, and you can't have booze on Park District property legally. You just can't do that. And I walked into the reunion, and I was there for about uh, 20 minutes when this occurred. One of the females that I went to high school with that I would have almost bet you would not have even known my name. Uh, I probably never said one word to her I, in my life. I was scared to death of her. She was gorgeous. And believe me, I was scared to death of all of them. And I was wearing my ID thing, as you have, and you have the picture of yourself from the 1972 yearbook, and it's got my name on there. She says, who are you? I said, I'm Harlan Grabowski. She said, you are not. She says, and I don't think you're funny. I really don't think you're funny. Harlan died a number of years ago from a heart attack because of his weight. Who are you and what are you doing here? And why are you pretending to be him? 
And I said, Ivy, I'm Harlan. And I showed her my driver's license, which at that time was an Arizona license that I had just gotten. And she said, oh my God, is that really you? I said, yeah. She said, I can't believe it. Now, this is a person I didn't even know would, would know me in a million years. How she knew who the hell I was, I couldn't tell you to this day. I, I never said a word to her. Believe me, I was scared to death of her. And I showed my driver's license to about four, five, six of them that night. They didn't believe I was who I said I was. And it was a wonderfully thrilling experience. And it says here, great events will come to pass for you and countless others. I can walk through O'Hare Airport. If you've never been to O'Hare Airport, it's huge. It's huge. It's humongous. When you see it from the air, it looks like a, a damn city. That's what it looks like. Uh, it's huge. And I never had to sit down and I never had to worry that I was going to pass out or anything. These may be little things. And I was picked up by my friends and some of them have great big cars. Some of them have cars that are not so big. I never had trouble getting in and I never had trouble getting out. Now, these may be small things to some of you. They may be small things to others. To me, they're huge, huge. Are you kidding me? I got in and out of a Toyota Corolla. I almost called the Tribune. I was demanding a photographer and a reporter come to the corner of Devon and Albany. I got out of a in and out of a Toyota Corolla. Me. Now, you may think that great events will come to pass for you and countless others means you're going to rocket to the moon or you're going to win the lottery or whatever. These are the things that get my attention. These are the things that get my attention. And as I walked along the street, I never got tired. And I never had to stop in and embarrass myself. I smelled the French fries and the pizza. I smelled all the various ethnic foods and the various things. I have a nose. I have the olfactory senses of a freaking polar bear. I can smell a Milky Way bar from three blocks away. Are you kidding me? I have the olfactory senses of a freaking polar bear when it comes to chocolate or fries or pizza. Are you kidding me? Well, anyway, I could smell it knowing I don't have to eat it. That wasn't the case the last time I walked down that street. That was never my reality as a child. If I smelled it, I had to have it. If I saw it, I had to have it and I had to have it now. And I didn't give a damn who it inconvenienced. And I didn't give a damn what I had to do to get it. I needed it and I wanted it right now. I'm not under that bondage anymore. I'm not under that bondage anymore. 
let's continue. And we're going to do Q&A a little early today because I'm not going to start the um, forward to the first edition today. I'm going to wait till next week. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. That's steps one, two, and three. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows, four through seven. Clear away the wreckage of your past, eight and nine. Give freely of what you find and join us, 10 through 12. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit in capital letters, because it is a higher power for many. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny, again in capitals, very important. May God bless you and keep you until then. What a journey it's been. As I walk through Chicago, as I remembered the things that were so traumatic, and as I stood outside my old apartment building at 6309 North Albany, my yellow apartment building, we lived on the first floor. And I remember that day back in February, February 2nd, 1979. My mother had died in 76. My father had died in 78, November 78. And I remember that the rent wasn't paid. And I had marshmallow bags and I had pizza boxes and Milky Way wrappers and Dorito bags and bags from different uh, carry out places and food wrappers all over the place. And the place was a disaster area. I was a disaster area. Everything in my life was a disaster area. And these two wonderful people, one of which her granddaughter was the one getting married when I went home to the wedding, that was her granddaughter that got married. They pushed their way past the filth and the smell and dragged me on that winter night to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous in Skokie at the Orchard Mental Health Center on Niles Center Road. I don't remember much about that first meeting. I do remember that there were some of the people there that I was very judgmental of thinking, if I could drive a car like you, or if I had what you had, or I looked like you, I sure as hell would not be here. I didn't realize that there's lots and lots of room in hell and that these people were not there because they were on a roll. They were there because things had gone terribly wrong for them. I didn't recover right away. But on that night, back in 1979, February 2nd, a chain of events started so that no doctor could have predicted, no forecaster could have predicted that in, 19, in 1979, they could not have predicted that in 2021, I would still be alive. I went to that meeting with no socks on, the bottoms of my feet were all fissured. What does that mean? It means that there were cracks in the skin because one of the ugly, horrible side effects of morbid obesity is cracked skin, dry, cracked skin. It's like walking on glass. 
the pair of pants that I had on, I had been wearing for months. I had one shirt or one pair of pants that would I would just wear for months. Nothing fit me. Nothing made me look good. I had penny and dime size ulcers in the back of my, of my calves, of my feet, my ankles, where the pus would run out. The swelling in my lower legs was so profuse that if I did wear socks, they would cut into my, cut into my ankles. The pain of standing or the pain of sitting were more than I could bear without a pizza. And the very thing that caused all this pain, the excess food, was the only thing I knew to turn to, to kill the pain. And I've said this before, I've eaten truckloads of Doritos to kill the pain of eating truckloads of Doritos. I had no self-respect. I had no dignity. I had nothing. I was an empty shell. I wanted to die way more than I wanted to live. And if someone would have asked me, I would have said, if, you, if they said, I could push a button, you'll die or live. I'd say, push the die right away. I saw no point to life. You guys handed me a book and you handed me your hand. The first time I ever held hands with a girl was that night, February 2nd, 1979. I was 24 years old and we stood in the end of the meeting and we would hold hands and we would say the serenity prayer. Meetings were very different in Chicago than they are today. We never heard of a Zoom meeting, that's for sure. But we would have the greeters and the huggers and the, and the hugging freaked me out, freaked me out. And the greeters and the this and the that. And we held hands at the end of the meeting and that was the first time I had ever held anyone's hand other than my mother or my dad. And um, little by little by little by little, and it took a lot more time than I care to think about, I got in recovery. This is the greatest way of life imaginable. And it's not how long we live, but it's what we do while we're here. It's not the length of life, it's the quality of the contribution. If you're on the fence and you're doing a little eating and you think you're getting away with it, think about what I'm telling you. That crap will never get me what I want. The love and the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous is so wonderful. Make this the most important thing in your life without exception. And you will be surrounded by a God that will help you through anything. I've made it through divorce. I've made it through a child who I have no contact with. I've made it through breakups. I've made it through business challenges, aging, the death of loved ones. I've made it through everything. And I never found it necessary to put that food in my mouth. And there's nothing that food can't make worse. You think it's going to make it better? It's not. 
there's nothing that some pizza won't make worse. And if you think your hell looks a certain way in your mind, you keep eating food and that hell will show you that it has a trap door. And there's a hell beneath the hell that you fear the most. We have to do a better job. Yes, not only as individuals, but as a group. We have failed the black community. We have failed the Hispanic community. We have failed the gay community. We have failed the Native American community. How many times have I spoken at conventions and in retreats all over this country? There isn't a face of color or there's five of them in a, in a convention of 1,000, 1,200 people and there's six people of color. We can do better. We will be stronger when we're a little more different. We will be better when we're a little more different. Don't fear it, work toward it. Because this is not a disease that just afflicts white people. It is a disease that devastates minority communities all around you. And certainly we can do better we can do better. We will be stronger, we'll be more effective when we are different. Trust me on this one, trust me on this one. We will be way better off when that improves. That said, it's the best and it's the only game in town. If you're a heavy eater, yes, you can go on a diet and you're fine. If you are a compulsive overeater, only a spiritual awakening will help you. It says in the big book that we have an illness which only a spiritual awakening will conquer. Trust the book. Do the work in front of you. Just share with you, share with others what you have. And it is the greatest way of life imaginable. Okay. We're gonna start next week with the forward to the first edition. We're gonna go back. So if you wanna tell somebody, whatever, we're gonna to go to the forward to the first edition. I don't see a big reason to go to the preface. The preface is, is good, but we're gonna start at the, at the forward to the first edition. I think that's more appropriate. We're gonna get into a lot of history we're going to get into a lot of things in the next few weeks that will help our understanding of how we got to be who we are and what we are. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Karen, who I don't even know if she's still here. I have no idea. I'm oh, going to turn I'm it here. back. I'm oh, good. Here. Okay, good. Thank <laughs> you. Because I, I can only see some of you. I can't see everybody. Okay. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Karen. In Karen Kay in New York, and then we'll go to our Q&A, and then it's off to the PETA jungle for lunch. Off to PETA jungle. Okay. Karen, wherever you are, it's your meeting. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Harlan. We're just going to stop the recording, and today is Saturday, um, November 19th, correct? 20th. 20th. We're going to make sure we, we do the correct date. Saturday, 
uh, November 20th, 2021. Is that the recording?